Let us pray. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Lord, we lift our eyes to you for instruction, wisdom, and love. Send your Holy Spirit to speak to us today. May we know you as our parent, our guide, our maker, and our Lord. You may be seated. It is good to be here with you all, at least in part. Thomas is away at camp this week. And unfortunately, those of you who were here last week know our daughter recently tested positive for COVID. Um, so she is out of the isolation window, um, but is still testing positive on rapid tests. So she's zooming in from home. Hello, Camille. The Pitterds left standing have, I think, maybe 16 negative rapid tests among us. So uh, including a full round last night and this morning. Um, so we feel safe to be here, um, but we will also, out of an abundance of caution, scoot straight out after service. Uh, thank you for your prayers for our family during this time. I'm going to start off by admitting this is actually the first time I have preached a sermon. Even though I spend my work days talking with people, I don't really do a lot of public speaking to big groups. And yes, I am a little bit nervous. I am also excited for what God has for us today. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will be at work. As I often pray here in the service for whoever is speaking, my desire is that anything that God has for each of us today will stand. Anything that is not from God will fall away. So we have a set of great and challenging passages to chew on today. At first, I actually thought that I was going to preach from the track two passages. That is a heavy hitting bunch of scripture with a very consistent message, upbeat, encouraging about the meaninglessness of wealth in light of our certain and coming death. Don't worry, you've been mostly spared. Track two is still rattling in my brain, and we also can't get completely away from Jesus' teaching this week. So we will definitely still touch somewhat on this theme. But after thinking about wealth and death for a number of weeks, last Sunday, I actually felt what I think was the leading of the Spirit to switch to the Hosea passage that we heard today. It is certainly one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, describing the tenderness of God's love for us, which is a message I personally need to hear again and again and again. So we will get there, but first, rather than focusing on wealth only, we're gonna zoom out and we're gonna talk about idolatry more broadly. I will venture this might be one way to draw our passages together. The wandering in the wilderness described in our Psalm paints a picture of the end result of idolatry, pointing to Israel's failure to stay faithful to Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt. The book of Hosea is an entire book describing God's steadfast, tender love for an Israel that continued to turn to the Baals. And Colossians, together with our gospel passage, point towards a more subtle, less obvious idol that was operative in the early church and surely continues through to this day, the God of Mammon, idol of money. So this is an overview of where I hope to take us today. Clearly, I have some work to do to bring these passages together. We'll see if I succeed, I'm not sure. But I would like to start us off by thinking together about the concept of an idol. What do we mean by an idol? If a statue of Baal, who is a Mesopotamian weather and fertility god, and money, a piece of cloth paper or some numbers on a screen that we use as a medium of exchange, have something in common, what might that something be? 
as I was reviewing, I found it interesting. There's actually very little about idols in the Hebrew Bible before Israel's God forbids idolatry in the Ten Commandments. There are a couple of stories, such as when Rachel, the wife of Jacob, takes her father's household gods. But there's actually not much in the way of directives from God or an explanation of God's view on these other objects of worship. However, somehow by the time of Moses, it seems that it is broadly understood what idols are. And the God of Israel quickly makes it very clear that he does not want his followers to have anything to do with them. To frame our discussion of our texts, I'm going to outline what I think are characteristics of an idol. In the interest of time, I'm not going to make an argument for my proposal. I'm just going to offer this as something to chew on, pray over, see for yourself if it makes sense. But it's the framework work we will use today. I think an idol is something that is made by people, that accesses or is imbued with spiritual power, and that calls us to worship. So it's made by people, it connects with the spiritual power, and it calls us to worship. Since my goal is to get to our scriptures, I'm only going to make a few brief points on this. My first point is that it seems that an instinct to worship is part of what it means to be human. We can fight this natural inclination, or we can aim it in an unholy direction, but on the whole, it seems that we are constantly in seek of something to worship, things to speak highly of, things that resonate deeply within our spirits, things that give us hope and direction, and that offer meaning and ask for our devotion. Our hearts seem to be forever on the lookout for things to praise and things to give ourselves to. And idols tend to be among the things that bring out this natural worship in us. Second, a word about the spiritual power of idols. I think this spiritual power is related to their capacity to draw out our worship. But I want to be a little cautious here. I'm not sure about other people in this room. I personally have experienced some slightly kooky, left-behind style theology about spiritual warfare. Experienced it up close with full scare tactics blaring. And so I have some mixed feelings about how we think about these spiritual powers. On the one hand, I want to say confidently with Paul that an idol is nothing at all in this world, that God is the one true God and we have nothing to fear. But on the other hand, it seems true that there is some kind of real spiritual power in many of the things of this world. Maybe this power is somehow inherent to the thing itself. Maybe it is something about the attention and focus and praise that we give it that makes it hold power over our imaginations and over our desires. In the end, here is where I land. I don't really need to know all the details of how these spiritual forces work in order to see that drawing close to certain things seems to have power to draw me further from God. Finally, before our scriptures, a quick word about idols being things that are made by people. I find it interesting that in the Ten Commandments, God first instructs us to have no other gods before him. But then also in the second commandment, separately tells us to not make idols or worship them. It seems that among all the different sorts of things that we might worship, things that are created by people might have an unusual kind of power that God wants to warn us against specifically. I'll have a little more to say about this later on. But for now, we'll turn to our scripture passages. I'll start with our psalm. I have always loved Psalm 107 and the beauty and the rhythm of its poetry. And I encourage you to read the full psalm in its entirety as a meditation on God's love for us 
For our purposes right now, though, I'm going to focus on a segment from electionary, actually just a portion of it, which I read as a description of Israel's time in the wilderness. To remind us briefly of the story it points towards, one which many of us know very well, Israel had just been miraculously brought to safety across the Red Sea with God's pillar of smoke and fire standing between their masses and the Egyptian army before that army was swept away in the sea. After a bit of complaining and a bit of fighting, they were led to Mount Sinai, where Moses went up to meet with God, who was again clouded in the mysterious glory of fire and darkness. At the very beginning of this time on the mountain, God tells Israel twice via Moses to not make idols. And in fact, tells them that he is speaking to them from heaven through this fire and dark cloud so that they will not make idols. And then God goes on to talk through the long version of his instructions and reviews quite a lot of other details with Moses. Coming up on 40 days, the people get discouraged. A month and change is long enough for them to forget God's double prohibition against idols and to take things into their own hands. A collection plate is passed for gold to be melted and chiseled into a calf, which they then worship as the God who brought them out of Egypt. This error almost led to their immediate destruction, but instead, it funneled into a cascade of failures and fears that ended with their refusal to walk confidently into God's promised land. In response, God banishes the nation of Israel into the wilderness for a time. Wilderness maybe so that they might fully understand the spiritual desolation of their false worship. As our Psalm says, they were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. If we take a principle from the psalm and the story it echoes, perhaps it is this. When we get tired of waiting on God and take things into our own hands, idolatry is often the result. And that idolatry leads to fear, an inability to trust God's goodness and provision. The end result of this idolatry and fear is desolation, spiritual wilderness, hunger and thirst, and lives that ebb away. There's more to say about the psalm, but I'm going to leave it there for now and turn to Hosea. Last week, Tyler movingly described the full earth, social and ecological bereftness of the land of Israel under idol worship. The idol in question, Baal, was a name for either a specific deity or perhaps a group of related deities in ancient Mesopotamia, which were most often associated with fertility and with weather, which might seem like a strange pairing, until we remember that we are dealing with an agricultural society and weather quite directly affected the fertility of the land and therefore of the land's inhabitants. Israel in this time continues to fail to trust God's provision and instead hedges her bets by worshiping the weather god too. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, God says. I wonder if this might bring us back to one of my proposed characteristics of an idol, that an idol is something that is made by people. The funny thing about our nature as worshipers is that though we feel this inner urge to worship, in our fear, we still want to hold on to some degree of control. By worshiping via objects that we create, I wonder if it offers us a false both and 
that we just might be able to have our cake and eat it too, to claim some degree of control over the outlet for our need to worship. That control, of course, is an illusion only. We will never be able to exercise the power that we want to wield. And perhaps this is why, among the gods vying for our worship, we are especially not to worship idols. Because when we do, we try to pretend ourselves into a place of power where we do not belong. So now we've looked at a couple of Old Testament style idols uh, and, and taken some principles from looking at those. Unfortunately, recognizing the idols we worship today is not always quite so simple. So I'm going to bridge us between the graven images of gold or silver from the Ten Commandments and Paul's contention that money is also an idol by going back to my working definition of an idol. If an idol is something that people make, then it is worth noting that we humans are quite creative beings and we do not make only things. We also make ideas, institutions, principles, mediums of exchange, and so on. These too, I believe, can become idols. And our New Testament passages invite us to take a look at these more subtle forms of idolatry. The Colossians text explicitly calls out the idol we will start with, though we will turn quickly to Luke to discuss it. In the midst of a passage focused mostly on other concerns, Paul tosses off a parenthetical aside and identifies our idol in a list of sins. Greed, which is idolatry. There is a lot to say about idolatry of money. In fact, I outlined a whole sermon about it, but you will not hear that today. The short version is this. We like to imagine money as neutral, either as an impersonal medium of exchange, or maybe as something that has both good and bad sides, which maybe kind of balance out. Jesus instead warns us to be on our guard against greed, against this idolatry. In another parable, his name for the thing exposes its underlying bent. Jesus calls money mammon of unrighteousness or mammon of iniquity. The force of mammon pulls deceitfully and strongly on us, and its pull is toward unrighteousness. What does money promise us? The same things it promised the rich man, abundance, comfort, opportunity, leisure, security. But as with any false god, it promises more than it can give. And we are led instead to the results of iniquity, to anxiety, selfishness, and greed, to failure to care for those around us or for the earth that we steward, to manipulation and abuse of power. The list goes on and on. I think at its root, Mammon tempts us with the idea that we might be able to be in charge of our own life, of our own fate. And this is where Jesus' focus on death, as challenging as it is, is so very helpful for us. Looking straight at our own death may be one of the most effective ways to expose all of the false promises that money offers us. Death reveals the lie of our supposed mastery of our life. We actually are not in charge. And recognizing this gives us a chance to put ourselves and our lives back in their proper ordering and place. Have you made a will? This is a funny question to come in the middle of a sermon, and I know that many of us here have. But for those who have it, lining up our possessions next to the inevitability of our death 
can actually be a remarkably effective tool to dethrone the idol of mammon. And I highly recommend it. So money is maybe the classic example of one of the more subtle forms of uh, one of the more subtle idols of today. Of course, there are many others. It is an overused trope at this point to pull out this beautiful, shiny object made by human hands that many of us carry with us all the time to name the amount of care and attention the thing demands and the power and the agency it offers us. But there are plenty of other idols in our modern world too, things that we create and that we devote ourselves to, houses, cars, ideas, institutions. As with money, these subtle idols are sneakier than their gold calf predecessors. Many of them seem practical and have good uses, but like mammon, many have an underlying bent that draws us away from the kingdom of God if we are not on our guard. We need the gift of discerning of spirits in order to figure out precisely where our devotions lie and how to disentangle ourselves from the spiritual powers that they, that they have. With that, I'm going to turn to one final idol from the subtle category, partly because I think our Colossians passage helps us here, even if it's not quite the main point of what it's saying, but mostly because it would be disingenuous to not name before you the idol that I struggle the most with. It is the idol of self. Now, self is a tricky concept. It can mean many different things, depending on the context in which we're speaking. And I think that if we don't clarify what we mean, we can end up heading down some spiritually unhelpful paths. I spent a lot of years actually confused between the self-sacrifice we are called to as Christ followers and an utter erasure of self, which on its surface looks somewhat similar, but is actually something quite different. For some of us, at some times in our lives, our self is actually not an idol at all, but a broken thing that needs to be restored. I think Colossians actually offers us some help here to think about this confusion. According to Paul, when we, are stripped, when we stripped off the old self, we were not left with nothing. We did not dissolve or disappear. Instead, we clothed ourselves with a new and different sort of self, one which is being renewed according to the image of its creator. Being people who carry the image of God is a very robust personhood. So I am not suggesting that we should erase ourselves. But we are talking about idolatry today, and if one error, as we think about the self, is erasure, there seems to be an equal but opposite error we can also fall into, and that is idolatry. Going back to our definition, definition of an idol, I want to draw out the, ideal, the idea of idols being made by people and also the idea of worship. As for me, being made by people, we obviously do not create ourselves in the most basic sense. But I do think that there are many parts of ourselves that we work hard to fashion. We have some agency to craft or to make. Our image, our style, many of our skills, perhaps our bodies, our reputation, our profiles. Just like with the handcrafted statues, we have the illusion that we are in control of this process. And when we work hard to craft this sort of self, I think that quite often, our ultimate goal is really to be noticed by others, to be thought highly of, in short, to be worshiped. For me, the temptation of cultivating a self to be worshiped, well, it can take many forms, but I think the most common one is about being capable. 
which I think I mean as a euphemism for powerful. I am a kind of person who gets a lot of things done, and I don't want to negate the spiritual gifts that God has given to the church in me or in anyone else. Being able to get through a pile of tasks can be a really good and holy blessing. But if you talk to my family, they will tell you that I am often at my most intolerable when I am on my get things done mission. At its root, in these moments, it is a deep idolatry of self that is working, at work in me, the thing that is striving for a God level of omnipotence, of all powerfulness. If I am not on guard, that thing will let nothing get in its way, heaven or hell or high water, or even the very people I am theoretically trying to serve. I think that Colossians again helps us here. The new self we put on is not one that we carefully craft and chisel so it can be worshiped by others. Instead, this new self is hidden with Christ in God. And surprisingly, it actually does have glory, but when its glory is revealed, it is revealed for us through the revealing of Christ. We are not the ones in charge of the revealing at all. The amazing thing about this new kind, this kind of new self is that the glory is something given and received, freely shared and celebrated, without being held too tightly, without being controlled. We give up, in fact, any desire to control it or to be worshipped. This is an invitation for us to participate in the blessed generosity of God, the giving and receiving community described beautifully. I remember Gabe's sermon from several months ago, I think at this point, um, the, the giving and receiving community of faith. Rather than grasping at the image that we have made for ourselves or clinging to the power that we try to exercise as pseudo-gods, we enter the simple companionship of being cursed. We allow God to shape our good and holy new selves rather than trying to do so on our own. We receive glory as a gift that we are not in charge of and we share it freely. We do not worry anymore about status or position. As Paul says, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Instead, Christ is all and in all. So we have come quite a ways through our scriptures today. We have discussed some characteristics that mark things as idols. We have walked through various ways that idol worship might play out in our lives and its effects, leaving us bereft through false promises, at the mercy of spiritual powers that do not work for our good, and the brokenness that results when we try to be something that we are not, namely all-powerful gods. We have also caught a glimpse of a new self that is offered to us in Christ when we lay down our idols and worship God alone. In closing, I'm going to offer just a few thoughts on how we might practically dethrone the idols we are tempted to worship. First, I think that we must name them for what they are. This can be tricky these days given the subtlety of many of the idols that operate in our culture. We can pray, we can ask God to show us our idols. Maybe we are brave enough to ask our friends and family too, because they probably have some ideas. We might list our possessions and talents and see what is hardest to imagine giving up. We can do an inventory of our calendars and our bank accounts and notice what things have captured the majority of our time, attention, and resources. Secondly, after we figure out what our idols are, we want to look for direct counter moves against those spiritual forces that are acting on us. Writing a will, or if it is money, we might also give away a generous amount. 
If it is an iPhone, we perhaps take a full day per week without touching the thing. If it is self, we look for opportunities to laugh at ourselves, to praise others, to be foolish, to be last, to sit at the end of a table or give generously from our power or prestige. Maybe we just stop in the middle of a swirling to-do list and acknowledge that all the tasks and abilities come only from God's abundant grace. But thirdly, and actually I think this is our most important move in dethroning our idols, we have to seek to grow in our love of God and our knowledge of his love for us. This takes us back again to Hosea and our Psalm. You may have noticed that I glossed over the best parts. God does not only instruct us to renounce our idols and punish us if we fail to do so. He calls to us as a parent calls to a child in tenderness, in love. Perhaps sometimes when we turn to idols, it is because we have forgotten the depth of God's love for us. In closing, let's listen again to these words that God speaks over us. God says, I gathered you out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. When you cried to me in your trouble, I delivered you from distress. I put your feet on a straight path to go to a city where you might dwell. And God says, it was I who taught you to walk. I took you up in my arms, but you did not know that I healed you. I led you with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to you like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to you and fed you. Friends, let us give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and the wonders he does for his children. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.